We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts, comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, choose one's own way. Hey friends, this is Dixon Kavanaugh, and welcome to another episode of Out Loud with Dixon, where we will explore wisdom, get creative, and better appreciate this fun, chaotic, and beautiful world that we live in. Right off the bat, I'm going to be totally honest, today's episode hits different. The amount of raw emotion and wisdom packed in today's reading is going to have you thinking and contemplating for days after you hear this, and quite likely for the rest of your life. That's because today's reading is of Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. What you will hear today is Dr. Frankl's account of his time and experience in Nazi concentration camps during World War II, namely the horrendous Auschwitz and Dachau. Dr. Frankl's insight and keen ability to draw valuable lessons from the painful environment of Auschwitz is in large part due to his training as a highly educated clinical psychiatrist and his ability to observe himself his environment, and the fellow prisoners buried alongside him. It's also because, unlike most of the prisoners, Frankl survived. But this isn't just a horror story. What makes Frankl's man's search for meaning so powerful and timeless is his message, that no matter the circumstances, we have the ability to choose our path, that spiritual freedom can be found in suffering, and maybe only through suffering and that love is the final wisdom. That being said, this inspiring message would fall flat if not appropriately placed in the nightmarish setting that it was born. The light of his message would lack the emotional immediacy if not for the stark contrast of a dark backdrop. For that reason, the first passage in today's reading will give us our backdrop. It will, in the best way the written word and the facility of my voice can give us a reflection of a glimpse of suffering and freedom in a Nazi concentration camp. If you're curious to hear what wisdom can be found in these pages, if you want direction in cultivating your own emotional, intellectual, and spiritual freedom, gather around, listen close, and join me as we journey into Man's Search for Meaning. I spent some time in a hut for typhus patients, who ran very high temperatures and were often delirious, many of them moribund. After one of them had just died, I watched without any emotional upset the scene that followed, which was repeated over and over again with each death. One by one, the prisoners approached the still warm body. One grabbed the remains of a messy meal of potatoes. Another decided that the corpse's wooden shoes were an improvement on his own and exchanged them. A third man did the same with the dead man's coat, and another was glad to be able to secure some, just imagine, genuine string. All this I watched with unconcern. Eventually, I asked the, quote, nurse to remove the body, 
When he decided to do so, he took the corpse by its legs, allowing it to drop into the small corridor between the two rows of boards, which were the beds for the 50 typhus patients, and dragged it across the bumpy earthen floor toward the door. The two steps which led up into the open air always constituted a problem for us, since we were exhausted from a chronic lack of food. After a few months' stay in the camp, we could not walk up those steps, which were about six inches high, without putting our hands on the door jams to pull ourselves up. The man with the corpse approached the steps. Warily, he dragged himself up, then the body, first the feet, then the trunk, and finally, with an uncanny rattling noise, the head of the corpse bumped up the two steps. My place was on the opposite side of the hut, next to the small, sole window, which was built near the floor. While my cold hands clasped a bowl of hot soup from which I sipped greedily, I happened to look out the window. The corpse which had just been removed stared in at me with glazed eyes. Two hours before, I had spoken to that man. Now, I continued sipping my soup. If my lack of emotion had not surprised me from the standpoint of professional interest, I would not remember this incident now because there was so little feeling involved in it. Apathy, the blunting of the emotions, and the feeling that one could not care anymore were the symptoms arising during the second stage of the prisoner's psychological reactions, and which eventually made him insensitive to daily and hourly beatings. By means of this insensibility, the prisoner soon surrounded himself with a very necessary protective shell. End quote. When was the last time you were so tired, so defeated that you literally could not walk up the steps? When you had to grab hold of the side of the doorway and crawl up one foot of stairs? Probably never. I chose this passage because it captured so much anguish in just two short pages. Knowing what he has faced, let's hear what Frankel has to say about the infinite saving grace of love. And back to the book. Quote, As we stumbled on for miles, slipping on icy spots, supporting each other time and time again, dragging one another up and onward, nothing was said. But we all knew. Each of us was thinking of his wife. Occasionally I looked at the sky, where the stars were fading and the pink light of the morning was beginning to spread behind a dark bank of clouds. But my mind clung to my wife's image, imagining it with an uncanny acuteness. I heard her answering me, saw her smile, her frank and encouraging look. Real or not, her look was then more luminous than the sun which was beginning to rise. A thought transfixed me. For the first time in my life, I saw the truth as it is set into song by so many poets, proclaimed as the final wisdom by so many thinkers. The truth, that love is the ultimate and the highest goal to which man can aspire. Then I grasped the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. The salvation of man is through love and in love. I understood how a man who has nothing left in this world still may know bliss, be it only for a brief moment, in the contemplation of his beloved. In a position of utter desolation, when man cannot express himself in positive action, 
when his only achievement may consist in enduring his sufferings in the right way, in honorable way. In such a position, man can, through loving contemplation of the image he carries of his beloved, achieve fulfillment. For the first time in my life, I was able to understand the meaning of the words, quote, the angels are lost in perpetual contemplation of an infinite glory, end quote. The mental fortitude to conjure an internal image of the beloved, to find strength and faith in the midst of suffering through the power of love. I'm always blown away by all the different books I read and all the different stories and characters and the cultural backdrop of the authors and how time and time again they say the same thing. Spiritual freedom and the meaning of life is found in love. It is found in living for a purpose beyond ourselves. And with that, back to the book, quote, In attempting this psychological presentation and a psychopathological explanation of the typical characteristics of a concentration camp inmate, I may give the impression that the human being is completely and unavoidably influenced by his surroundings. In this case, the surroundings being the unique structure of camp life, which forced the prisoner to conform his conduct to a certain set pattern. But what about human liberty? Is there no spiritual freedom in regard to behavior and reaction to any given surroundings? Is that theory true, which would have us believe that man is no more than a product of many conditional and environmental factors, be they of a biological, psychological, or sociological nature? Is man but an accidental product of these? Most important, do the prisoner's reactions to the singular world of the concentration camp prove that man cannot escape the influences of his surroundings? Does man have no choice of action in the face of such circumstances? We can answer these questions from experience as well as on principle. The experiences of camp life show that man does have a choice of action. There were enough examples, often of a heroic nature, which proved that apathy could be overcome, irritability suppressed. Man can preserve a vestige of spiritual freedom, of independence of mind, even in such terrible conditions of psychic and physical stress. We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts, comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, choose one's own way. And there were always choices to make. Every day, every hour offered the opportunity to make a decision, a decision which determined whether you would or would not submit to those powers which threatened to rob you of your very self, your inner freedom which determined whether or not you would become the plaything of circumstance, renouncing freedom and dignity to become molded into the form of the typical inmate. Seen from this point of view, the mental reactions of the inmates of a concentration camp must seem more to us than the mere expression of certain physical and sociological conditions. Even though conditions such as lack of sleep, insufficient food, and various mental stresses may suggest that the inmates were bound to react in certain ways, in the final analysis, it becomes clear that the sort of person the prisoner became was the result of an inner decision and not the result of camp influences alone. Fundamentally, therefore, any man can, even under such circumstances, decide what shall become of him 
mentally and spiritually. He may retain his human dignity even in a concentration camp. Dostoevsky said once, there is only one thing that I dread, not to be worthy of my sufferings. These words frequently came to my mind after I became acquainted with those martyrs whose behavior in camp, whose suffering and death bore witness to the fact that the last inner freedom cannot be lost. It can be said that they were worthy of their sufferings. The way they bore their suffering was a genuine inner achievement. It is this spiritual freedom, which cannot be taken away, that makes life meaningful and purposeful. If there is a meaning in life at all, then there must be a meaning in suffering. Suffering is an eradicable part of life, even as fate and death. Without suffering and death, human life cannot be complete. The way in which a man accepts his fate and all the suffering it entails, the way in which he takes up his cross, gives him ample opportunity, even under the most difficult circumstances, to add a deeper meaning to his life. It may remain brave, dignified, and unselfish. Or in the bitter fight for self-preservation, he may forget his human dignity and become no more than an animal. Here lies the chance for a man either to make use of or to forego the opportunities of attaining the moral values that a difficult situation may afford him. And this decides whether he is worthy of his sufferings or not. Some details of a particular man's inner greatness may have come to one's mind, like the story of the young woman whose death I witnessed in a concentration camp. It is a simple story. There is little to tell, and it may sound as if I had invented it, but to me it seems like a poem. This young woman knew that she would die in the next few days, but when I talked to her, she was cheerful in spite of this knowledge. I am grateful that fate has hit me so hard, she told me. In my former life, I was spoiled and did not take spiritual accomplishments seriously. Pointing through the window of the hut, she said, This tree here is the only friend I have in my loneliness. Through that window, she could see just one branch of a chestnut tree. And on the branch were two blossoms. I often talk to this tree, she said to me. I was startled and didn't quite know how to take her words. Was she delirious? Did she have occasional hallucinations? Anxiously, I asked her if the tree replied. Yes. What did it say to her? She answered. It said to me, I am here. I am here. I am life, eternal life. End quote. Intense stuff, I know. Are you bearing your suffering well? Are you doing your best to make contact with the eternal life of nature that lives around you always, no matter the circumstances? Are you taking responsibility for your decisions and making the most of the opportunities that come your way? Or are you closed off, commiserating in your own poor situation? I hope today's reading has helped us put our lives in perspective and inspired us to take more action, more ownership in how we choose to think, act, and be in the world. One daily practice that I have to consistently help me stand guard at the door of my mind is morning and nightly breathwork sessions. Also, just taking time to be in nature. If this episode has served you, if today's reading has helped you in any way, make sure to subscribe to the channel, leave a review, and share it with a friend. And above all else, remember, live with presence, confidence, and love. Thank you.